Hey, I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. On today's episode, we're going on a Chloe adventure. A Chloe Brown adventure, that is. You'll learn more about the only candidate that gave John Tory a run for his money the last time, who is also currently running in this by-election, but uh, oddly enough, not included in any of the advanced polling. We touch on a bunch of things like public safety, policy, policing, mental health, housing, food, family, and so much more. Plus, you'll get the story behind one of the few existing monuments of Japanese heritage in Toronto and its connection to both Ontario Place and the Science Centre. All of that coming up on Today in TO. At the end of the day, the only poll that really matters with this mayoral election in Toronto is the one on Monday, June 26th. However, three recent polls have pegged Olivia Chow as the frontrunner. The Forum Research poll of 2,000 respondents has Chow in the lead with 33%. Both Mark Saunders and Josh Matlow trail her with 14%. And I'm only telling you this because the polls are out there. One actually embarrassingly included former Mayor John Tory, and he received 42% of the vote. Are you sure about that? What are we even doing here? Now, at this point, it's a bit of a clown car race. We've already broken a record for the number of candidates in a Toronto election, and I'm not going to even attempt to tell you the exact number, because by the time you hear this, I will be wrong about it. (laughs) At last check, we're north of 70. We've got a couple of 18-year-olds, a semi-nude model, the inventor of fastball, a couple MPPs, a former police chief, a couple of backroom boys and girls, and a self-described neurodivergent disruptor. You won't find Chloe Brown's name on any of these polls, which is why this episode will focus on Brown and her policies, her beliefs, values, and what's driving her to fight for a better Toronto again. And if you're saying to yourself, Danny, why Chloe Brown when there are literally dozens of candidates that aren't, quote, household names? Well, that's an easy one. It's because Chloe Brown placed third in the October 2022 election with more than 34,000 votes, which represents 6.3% of the total pie. And it cost her way less money to run. As Edward Keenan reported in the Toronto Star, putting this in perspective, in the eight elections since amalgamation in 1997, Chloe Brown's vote share is the 20th best result by any candidate. So why won't you see her name in any of the polls then? Hmm, I don't know. So before you hear our longer conversation, I did hear a couple of things that really piqued my interest. First, and you've probably heard this before, I think I've even said it before, and that is that the city of Toronto is broke. Not broken, but it's like we want to go to Disney World on a Wonderland budget. And again, I'll ask, Are you sure about that? The city's not broke. It's poorly governed. It actually has $11.4 in reserves, and that's COVID money. This is why the feds in the province are not giving the city money, because they know they've been squirreling away the COVID dollars and the subsidies that the feds and the province have given them, 
and they have been artificially keeping property taxes low through that. So I really challenge people to remove the idea that the city's broke. The city's priorities are to put this money away for 10-year capital projects that a lot of politicians run on continually where it's like, yeah, I'll deliver this project in five years, this project in 10. And that's how they string us along. And this is also how they hide money for public services, because as long as it's put aside in a reserve for the gardener, that money can't be touched because it's been allocated. So there's $11 billion that the city of Toronto is not spending because they'd rather keep that promise to their donors that their property taxes will remain low. Meanwhile, the reality of public service is that the city only has so few revenue generating tools. If they're not going to spend your tax dollars on fixing the city, what use are they? I do think it is important to have a long-term plan and to have money set aside for things we want to build up to and maintain. But the idea that the city is like Nordstrom's, bougie, but broke, is not completely accurate. I also loved Chloe Brown's response to how she would approach policing in the city. So the approach I'm taking is creating a strong commissioner's governance model at the city of Toronto. And when it comes to policing, that would bring police services, fire, paramedics, and Toronto Public Health, the Office of Emergency Management, and court services under one large commission Mm -hmm. so that they could work together to improve how they triage, uh, use their real estate assets to provide housing for those essential workers, and also just reset their budget by dividing it evenly across the board. Because it shouldn't cost a billion dollars to protect three million people. At that rate, everyone should have their own personal security guard. And this is where I I have to ask myself, is the problem really that we don't have enough police or are we just not setting the right performance metrics, giving them the right technology, or are we overburdening the police with social and healthcare work that they're not mm. trained for? And that's one of the biggest issues when it comes to policing. They're not supposed to be providing health care, social work, um, family reunification. They're supposed to be doing tactical operations and investigative services to take down organized crime. And this is where even the idea of random crime becomes a really politicized issue because there's no such thing as random crime. There is crime that is building up to seem random. Many of Chloe Brown's ideas are based on more of a community support system and working smarter, not harder. In fact, community is one of the C's in her 3C platform. And you'll hear more about that after this. This isn't Chloe Brown's first rodeo. She rolled into this race with a proven track record in the 2022 municipal election. And we know that that one ended up being more like foreplay with a a disappointing finish. And on the evening of February 10th, when John Tory said he would be stepping down, Chloe Brown told me she had people buying up her website domains, setting up donations and self-organizing on her behalf. The first time I was just really standing out and trying to capture lightning in a bottle. And this time I'm trying to capture it and do something with it. Yeah. Does this run feel different? Yes, because the truth is, as a working class person, I fully saw John Tory as being like the old guard in every meaning of the word. Like he comes from old money. He has 
the privilege, the name and all those things. But it didn't matter to me because I, too, work for this city. I put my blood, sweat and tears in being a part of the fabric of Toronto. And I deserve accountability and I deserve respect. And so does everyone else who punches in those eight to 12 hours, sometimes even 16, to make sure that we have a roof over our head that pays into the property taxes. So it's like, yeah, before I just wanted to be heard. And now it's just like, I want to change the management structure. If given the chance, I do want to modernize the city of Toronto in a way that's inclusive, accessible, and in a way that people will not remember John Tory's management style. Because the truth is, like he is symbolic of a lot of corporate boardrooms across the country. And I'm a representative of a lot of frustrated working class people who have good ideas, but we don't necessarily have the right privilege to be heard. So yeah, it's become wider in scale in terms of its meaning, but the impact that I'm hoping to make is the same. I highly recommend you spend a little time poking around Chloe Brown's website and checking out her platform, which outlines her 3C approach, community, connectivity, and care. Under the community pillar, I was struck by one of her ideas to create a campus of care. So the campus of care is actually in progress right now in Parkdale. And it's a piece of land that was bought by the University Health Network to create a dementia village to support people with dementia and their families. It's similar to the Ronald McDonald House model, but for seniors. And it made me think about how do we use that model to approach community care? And that's building it into neighborhoods. So when I think about a campus of care, it's your primary specialist, your child care, your seniors, your mental health specialist, and they live in your neighborhood. Instead of going to the hospital, it's like you know that there's a team in your neighborhood that you can call to help you manage the more acute and chronic symptoms of your illness without being sent to a hospital, long-term care, hospice. And that's what the campus part is about. Like we have to proactively be learning and accepting that knowledge changes. And when that knowledge changes, we allow people to participate in it. And that's what I always felt at school. It's just like, it's okay to be wrong here, but when you're wrong, accept it and allow people to correct it. So that approach when it comes to our neighborhoods could, in my eyes, reduce the amount of violence and police calls that are made that are not necessarily emergencies as opposed to personal crises that are have been exacerbated by a lack of social networks. So yeah. well you and you talk about the kind of the idea of a school campus um, and just even even as you're speaking, I'm thinking, well, the peace of mind of just knowing, like, if I have an emergency, I have a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start a new job, you know, you you have these best practices. You're given kind of this, here's where you go for this, A, B, and C. But then it comes to actually surviving in our communities, and we don't seem to have that same idea. Exactly. Um, moving along to the, the commerce part, um, I know we're getting into the spring and we don't really want to talk about it, but... You have this winter activation program, and I want to know about the snow mayor. So as a girl born in December, it's always dawned on me that no one's around for my birthday because people hate winter and the city's not built for it. So I want to have someone in council or even just a member of the public that really loves winter to help us make Toronto a winter-friendly city. So 
whether they're setting up fire pits and teaching people how to properly use them when it comes to roasting food outside in the winter, whether it's someone who helps us set up winter markets in our park and really bring the maple syrup festival closer to everyone because there's such a great opportunity for us to be 24 7 365 people if the city was actually set up for living there's a lot of working that happens but there's very few spaces to live outside of your home and having that winter czar would be someone who really wants to pull the public out and make us winter friendly because the truth is the Netherlands, um, Colorado, there's a lot of places that really get the public out to love winter and to make the best of their lives, despite the fact that it's dark. We don't have that. We are very much like, I hate this for three months out of the year. We're just <laughs> commonly brought together by our hatred for the slush and the lack of winter maintenance. But what if we actually had someone that was enthusiastically getting the public ready? making sure that whatever services and departments are associated with the winter season are ready for the upcoming season <laughs> instead of you know tracking the winter plow on your phone it's like you can proactively be a part of this winterization so as a part of that it's like we need to get bathrooms ready in the summer mm -hmm. we need to have better park amenities throughout all seasons so that by the time winter's around it's like yeah being in the park doesn't seem like a strange idea. You're out there, you're setting up, you know, your little fire pit with friends and you get to really enjoy what it means to be Canadian as opposed to, you know, trying to find a chalet in Blue Mountain and blowing yeah. out your winter paycheck. <laughs> totally. There's there's barriers to even being able to enjoy certain aspects of the, the winter months. And you're right. We all just kind of put our heads in the sand and we're like, don't talk to me until... March. <laughs> I I almost don't want to talk about bike lanes because some candidates are like, everyone tells me they're bad. And I'm like, truly, you haven't spoken to everybody. Do people realize that you can design the roads with bi-directional lanes like we have on Lakeshore on the major roads? You don't have to have bike lanes on both sides. You could just create one really large lane for them. Parking's on the other side and it, that could change the flow of traffic. And it's really just a matter of us updating design rules. The current rules that dictate how Toronto functions are really centered in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And it's really funny to me that people are so like sensitive about bike lanes because it's like I grew up in the generation that was trying to fight obesity. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like being outside was a good thing. Participation. Um, <laughs> there's body break. Like yeah. I grew up with so much emphasis on being physically active that this feels so regressive. It's like, so you don't want kids off their phone. You don't want people to be exercising. Bikes are such a great way to engage the public in being present. It becomes one of those really weird spaces where it's like, okay, so the people against bike lanes clearly don't, don't enjoy being liberated in a different sense because I love being on my bike, not having to use the main roads, using the back end laneways. And it's a really great way to give kids who cannot drive independence. What are some things you love about Toronto? Like, do you have a favorite restaurant? Do you have a favorite, like, event or something like that? Like, what's a highlight of Toronto for you? Honestly, I love to just go out and eat. <laughs> <laughs> I love to be able to just wake up whenever I want and feed my, my appetite. <laughs> and it's, like, one of my best and worst traits because... <laughs> 
I will not starve. <laughs> and that makes me really easy to please, to be honest. And <laughs> yeah, I grew up in a Chinese Jamaican household. So it's like, I love the idea that I can get Jamaican food, Chinese food, Korean, Japanese, whatever really floats my boat at whatever time. And I can go to Chinatown at 2 a.m. and there's restaurants open. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's a different vibe at night and you can enjoy it safely. Unlike in, unlike other places that I've been where it's like, yes, as a woman, you can go out, but you better go out with six girls, two guys, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's like, I really just love being a quiet adult in the city and being able to, you know, enjoy things safely. You've talked about a safer Toronto in nine months, and you've got this interesting plan that uh, doesn't involve just throwing police officers at the matter. Um, can you kind of walk me through what some of the things would help Toronto be safer according to your policy and plan? So one of the things that I've been really just thinking about is the toll boots. And when the toll operators were in there, they were the first line of safety. I've been on TTC since I was three years old. So it's like, I remember just seeing TTC staff being that intermediary between like de-escalation and getting the public to safety. Policing is a very new thing to me. So it's like, when we think about like the TTC modernization, it's like, did TTC really modernize safety or did they just upgrade to policing? And to me, that's an inefficient use of our resources because TTC staff is already really familiar with the types of violence and also the types of ish social issues that exist. And when I think about how those toll booths can be used, it's like, yeah, stock them with mobile crisis workers, stock them with the existing security guards, make sure that we're actually using these CCTV systems to not just react, but to respond before someone gets through the toll booth. Because there's so many different entry points into the TTC and to stop police officers at every station would be madness. So it's like, yeah, let's just make sure that more people involved in the supply between like me going to my, from my workplace to the grocery store, et cetera, are activated to respond to smaller incidences of violence. Because in my opinion, a lot of the violence that we're seeing on the TTC is preventable if there was a plan to transition people out of shelter hotels into more permanent forms of housing. And we really have this building issue where it's like, yeah, there's been a lot of approved applications for building housing, but not enough housing is being built because construction workers are suffering. The population is not able to find appropriate housing. And when I say appropriate housing, I mean for people with disabilities. There's not enough housing for people with disabilities. Therefore, me in my apartment is not really contributing to building better housing for the situation when I call for affordability. There needs to be also accessible housing. So yeah, I'm trying to make more structures and services accessible within nine months so that as we look at modular housing, which has been a really great save in making rapid development housing solutions for social services. It's like, yeah, we need to make sure that there's better response and 
also just a better use of medical and paramedicine services. Because I think about where I live, I live between Keel Station and High Park, and there's a paramedic station. If there were some type of rotating shift of paramedics walking through the station with TTC to make sure that these services are mobile and agile, we would have a better way of spotting these incidences before they become increasingly violent. And yeah, that's really how I see public awareness and education and public health working together to just reduce the scale of violence that we're seeing because while it seems new, these incidences of violence have been really present in my life as a woman who has taken TTC, where I've been followed onto station platforms, I've been followed off the bus, and my concerns weren't taken seriously because physical violence hadn't happened. Right. So it's like, before physical violence can happen, let's actually address like the more obvious signs of people being agitated, being in a state of crisis because the truth is since the shelter hotels we've just been evicting mentally ill and disabled people from one spot to another we kick them out of shelter hotels we kick them out of the parks we then kick them out of ttc this constant eviction is just festering a sense of displacement which then becomes violent so yeah, that's kind of my theory of change when it comes to public safety. We have to see it as more of a public health issue, like a displacement issue, and we respond with agile and accessible social and medical services. I love that I asked about public safety and Chloe Brown touched on housing, healthcare, and taking proactive instead of reactive measures. We need to look past the material wealth and ask ourselves, like, do you feel spiritually and morally bankrupt living in this yeah. city. Wealth isn't the issue. It's like we as an intelligent society just don't think we are worthy of being helped because we have an education. We don't think we're worthy of social services because it's like, well, you have a job. And it's like, no, it's deeper than that. We all have needs and we all pay into this government system that should be governing in our interest. If it's not, then we should be not just like waving the white flag, but asking the holders of our trust, what are you doing? Yeah. Was there a moment where even even prior to the last election where you were like, this is this is what I want to do. This is my direction. And was there someone that kind of mentored you through that or that you looked up to? Honestly, my parents didn't even know I was really running until they started <laughs> to see the articles and the media clips. And they're like, Chloe, what are what are you up to? And I'm like, I'm just frustrated. Please don't take this too seriously. You know what I mean? I don't, I try not to drag my family into every Chloe adventure, but it's like my, my mom really inspires me because throughout the pandemic, my mom just really held down the fort. And it was because my, my stepfather passed. They were together for 27 years. And yeah, my mom couldn't miss a beat because bills still needed to be paid and my niece and nephew still needed to be cared for. So it's like my mom, as usual, just really stepped in. And yeah, I, I admire a lot about my mom. And it's because my mom grew up in poverty in Jamaica. And it's like she has never been stopped from dreaming, you know? Yeah. Like my mom grew up as a woman 
in the 80s where like if she needed to get an OSAP application, my dad would have had to sign. And right now it's just like my mom's biggest hope for me was to have options. And it's like, yeah, she she still is working and learning and she just doesn't give up because she really believes in my right to have the same things that everyone else has. It's that basic. My mom fights tirelessly for me. And that's why I have the audacity to run for office. (laughs) People are worried about their kids and you're out here running for mayor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing. It's like at 32, I'm just grateful that I survived my 20s. (laughs) And I look back at the people that were there for me. And it's like, yeah, I'm so glad that they're alive. They're having kids. They're planning for the future. And I fully understand that a lot of people are not versed in the language of government. And that's where, like, let me lend a hand. Let me fight this machine because that's what I trained for. And I know some people train to be nurses and to be caregivers. And those things are valid. And people shouldn't always have to transform into a policy analyst to get what they want. And that's really at the root of why I do this. And I don't feel afraid to do this because I know that there are so many talented people that are unheard. Toronto is symbolic of a lot of dysfunction across the country right now. And if we are going to set the example for what progress looks like, it really starts here. And I hear people being like, oh, how are you going to fight Doug Ford? And it's like, who is Doug Ford to the city of Toronto? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> we boot him. Yeah, we booed him during the, when the Raptors won. We'll boo him until things get fixed because that is democracy. It's not a coronation or a monarchy. It's the will of the people. And we just really need to be reminded of that constantly because, yeah, it's really easy to get swept up in the 24-hour media cycle, your 12-hour shifts, your need to be an active family member. But you have to remind yourself, like, your freedom was bought at a very high price. (laughs) Yeah. And you're worth it. You know what I mean? Like, even as poor as you are, you're worth it. Like you come from generations of people paying for your freedom. (laughs) So yeah, cash that in. Like that's that's fun, babe. (laughs) I was just going to say, I would get that money back. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean that for everyone. And this is where I try not to like, I try not to build like, dwell into my identity because it's like I grew up with poor white kids, poor Muslim kids, poor Chinese and Asian kids. Like we are bonded by our lack. (laughs) And that hasn't stopped us. You know what I mean? It's one of the more for me, that's one of the more profound things that brings me back to policy. It's like there are so many people that don't realize that Canada is a nation of survivors. People that survive some of the worst atrocities in the world and they were able to survive and get here. And that's why we see this. That's why we kind of see voter apathy because people are just grateful to be safe, but the cost of safety and security is oftentimes like your future liberties. So yeah, get involved. And I really just want to push people to, to remember that being working class is one of the greatest like progress stories of our time. Like we used to be peasants. (laughs) you know, and we didn't have education. We didn't have a lot of things. And it's like, yeah, all you really need to do now is vote. You don't have to fight the kings or the monarchs 
of brands. <laughs> Thank, Thank God. God. <laughs> yeah, seriously, just go out and vote on a beautiful uh, June Monday. Yeah. Oh, just... yes. <laughs> I used to work with someone who said, where possible, always get out on a laugh. So yeah, you may hear us giggling, but I assure you, we're not playing around. That was my chat with mayoral candidate Chloe Brown. And now here's producer Glenn Bergonier with a fitting feature seeing as it is Asian Heritage Month. You'll get the story behind one of the few existing monuments of Japanese heritage in Toronto and its connection to both Ontario Place and the Science Centre. That's right. And not only is it a connection to both the Science Centre and Ontario Place, but this monument is also a partial child of Raymond Moriyama. Now, if you don't remember who he is, Raymond Moriyama was the architect who designed the Ontario Science Centre and also designed the Japanese Canadian Cultural Centre. And the monument in question is a 1,200-pound solid bronze commemorative centennial bell which is located in the heart of Ontario Place. Now, the bell was originally commissioned by the Japanese External Trade Organization and was exhibited at the CNE for the first time in 1977. Over 17,000 Japanese Canadians either donated or helped raise funds for the bell and the belfry before it was then gifted to the Japanese Canadian Cultural Centre, or the JCCC. So after some time, the JCCC decided that it would be best to donate the bell to the province of Ontario as a gift to better commemorate the centennial of Japanese settlements in Canada. After which, Canadian architect Raymond Moriyama, like we discussed earlier, who also designed the JCCC and the Science Centre, was commissioned to design the striking belfry, which, when it hits the bell, resonates with a deep, rich, and beautiful sound. Since 1977, when permitted, members of the Japanese community ring this bell in celebration of not only the new year, but also later in the year to celebrate Obam, a day of remembrance for ancestors. In 2012, after Ontario Place was closed down for redevelopment, a commemorative plaque that went along with the bell was also largely made of bronze went missing. The National Association of Japanese Canadians reached out to Ontario Place staff to try to figure out exactly what happened to the plaque, and no answer was ever really given. However, with very little pushback or issues, the staff at Ontario Place offered to replace the plaque and even updated it with the addition of a centennial logo in the upper left corner and a modern translation for famous haiku by famed Japanese-Canadian poet Takeo Nakano. And so, 46 years later, the beautiful bronze bell and plaque are still on display in the West Island of Ontario Place and remain accessible to the public as a piece of cultural history. Did not realize this, but apparently the birthplace of the bell is China. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode next week. So till then, take care. Bye-bye now. <laughs>